The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Jonathan, I'm excited to hear from you this morning. Let me, uh, let me read our scripture, uh, and then we will hear you gladly. So, Hosea, chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Therefore... Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. and No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I shall sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We read our passage. It comes from Hosea, which is actually the first book in the book of the Twelve. And our series that we're doing at Mosaic right now is called A God Who Keeps His Promises. We wanted to do this, and I think this is getting at what my introduction was. I didn't just want to do that to wax poetically about you guys and make you feel good about me standing up here and engender some good feelings, though that is part of it. Uh, but, you know, what, what I wanted to say is that the church, through our relationships and the way we behave in the community around us and the way we do things, our covenant relationship with God has to matter because the church has to have a prophetic voice in the culture that it finds itself, in the community that it finds itself. And I think one of the great travesties that we've seen in recent years is that in an, a, a sense to try and sort of protect ourselves, we've lost a bit of that prophetic edge. People look at a community of, of believers in a church and they say to themselves, well, this is, why would I even be a part of that? What's the point? They don't seem any different. There's no unity. The infighting seems to be the same. The divorce rates seem to be the same. The fatherhood issues seem to be the same. And in our relationships and our love, we've lost a sense of the prophetic. The sense or this idea that our joy and our relationships with one another can lead us into something deeper and greater that the gospel is calling us to. And so we're doing this series to kind of remind us of these everyday prophets that we're calling the people of God to something more. And Hosea does this for us. And so we're going through one book a Sunday, which is quite the task. And so the passage that was read to you this morning is more of a summation of the heart of Hosea. You're not going to get a verse-by-verse 
exposition of the verses read this morning. But we're going to look at Hosea as a whole. To do this, you kind of have to look at the context of the book, right? Any good sermon or a good lecture on a Bible book or a set of passages, it has to place it in its context. And if you're looking at the book as a whole, you have to do this. And so Hosea comes in what we call the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve. Now they're not minor because they're, you know, less than or, or, or not as important as the bigger names that you would know. They're minor because they're short and they're small. And let's be honest, they're kind of weird. And a lot of these books are books of the Bible that if you have a paper Bible, the pages might stick together a little bit, you know, because you don't really go to them all that often. And that's okay. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to have to preach Habakkuk. We're going into Nahum next week. These are things like if you gave me a Bible trivia test right now, I would not do well. There would be many of you that would probably be able to beat me. These messages are weird. These names are weird. And yet, there's a profound importance. And the Hebrew people did this really interesting thing with the book of the Twelve, these minor prophets. Instead of kind of leaving them out to be on their own and letting them stand on their own, they, they collected them and put them together and they share a message that when read together it is encompassing of what God's heart for his people is. Quick background on the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, I'm sure if you're familiar with these things, you can just zone out for a second. But I think it's worth and bears repeating. The Hebrew scriptures are shaped differently than what our English version is. Fun word. You know, I always like to give these because it makes you sound more intelligent. You can say Tanakh. It's the Tanakh. It's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim. It's the prophet or the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the minor prophets fall in what would be the section of the prophets. It's what we do. We point out obvious things as preachers. Makes us feel better about ourselves. But in the prophets, you have the heavy hitters, the ones you know about. You've got Joshua, Judges, Samuel. I mean, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you've got some things that we maybe wouldn't consider the prophetic, which is Joshua, Samuel, Joshua, Samuel, Judges, Kings. Big books, ones you know, and then you have the ones that are a little less known. Sure, 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 Jonah, everybody knows Jonah, big fish. The book's not about the big fish, by the way, but that's the only part we obsess over because it allows us to miss the real conviction of the book, which is that we don't love people that are different than us. So it's easier to make it about a big fish. Amos 5, Martin Luther King Jr. and his famous sermons. Sure, Malachi made it into a Chance the Rapper lyric. Hosea, thanks to Francine Rivers, we all know it. If you know, you know. Am I right, Francine Rivers fans? Okay. Redeeming love. Okay, so some of these are sort of famous, but on their own, you don't know a lot about them. And so the Hebrew scriptures, they took them and they put them together and they actually like share seam lines. Quite literally, these would have been scrolls. You know, we talk about Jesus. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he would have unrolled it. They would have had a scroll of the twelve and these minor prophets were literally connected together. But in so doing, there also was a way that they were edited and formed and put together that they shared through lines of importance of telling us of who God is. They're connected. Now with all things as they are, there are debates on which one falls where and and how they got exactly in the order they were. But in the order that we've received and understand, what we see is that there's a message about who God is. And at Mosaic, what we're calling our series is a God who keeps His promises. 
Because we think that's one of the overarching, overall, grand, kind of overarching message of the minor prophets. A God who is faithful. God who is willing to be near to his people. And so this is what the minor prophets do. Now I say all this uh, one sense so that maybe you'll be inspired to go home and dig into the minor prophets. Read those books that maybe you can't quite pronounce. And that's okay. The key to pronouncing biblical words is to just say it with confidence and say it fast. And then move on. And everybody else will just think, oh crap, I've been saying it wrong the whole time. That's my bad. And then you're like, yeah, me too. Anyways, so I mispronounce a lot of words. But maybe then when you read this, it'll give you an understanding and a framework for what's happening here. Because if you read Hosea, you might be tempted to think that the idolatry and the covenant breaking that's happening would lead you to believe that this group of people just has abandoned worship of Yahweh. But if you read it in context with Amos, who is his contemporary, that's giving a similar message at a similar space and time, you would understand that no, the people of God are worshiping quite vibrantly. The temples are packed. They haven't quit worshiping God. That's not the covenant breaking. The covenant breaking is that they have intermingled the worship of the idols and the gods around them. They've misplaced and and misdirected their heart of worship into other spaces, into other things. In doing so, they do it under the name of Yahweh a lot of times. Does ring any bells? This is a message for us today to hear and to understand. So a quick little historical context. I gave you its literary context. Let's, let's go into historical context of Hosea. This is a quick reminder again, you all being astute um, biblical studies scholars yourselves. The kingdom of Israel starts united. Not very long. We have Saul, David, Solomon. After that, civil war breaks out. And it separates. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is who Hosea's message is directed towards. Half of the minor prophets, well five of them, five of the twelve, exist in this historical time frame where the northern kingdom still exists. They all exist where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are divided. The other ones exist after the northern kingdom falls. These uh, in Hosea you will hear referenced as Ephraim. Your king in the northern kingdom during this time is King Jeroboam II. It's probably my second favorite king name after Tiglath-Pileser III in the Bible. And I had a Hebrew professor tell me that you should name your dog that. And I think that that stands. Although I couldn't convince my wife of that when we got our English bulldog. The southern kingdom is Judah, the one that stands in the line of the Davidic throne. Judah gets Jerusalem, so it's like uh, they're a little bit better. But, and they get the name Judah, which we're all familiar with. But still, the kingdom's not what it's supposed to be. The people of God have already broken covenant. And in so doing, they continue to break it again and again and over and over. But here's what's interesting. Is while these kingdoms are separated, there's actually a lot of economical and political success happening. And if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern religions, what you know is, is as goes your country, goes your God. So the assumption is, if your God is powerful, your country will be powerful. If your country is unsuccessful, your God is not very good. It is also assumed 
that as goes your success, goes your favor with said God. So, the northern kingdom is experiencing under Jeroboam what is considered probably the most fruitful time in its economy, in its culture, and in its like military. It's powerful. It's large. It's successful. The boundary lines are expanding. And as you read through Psalms and Proverbs, you know this is a sign of God's favor. Extend my boundary lines. Let them fall in pleasant places. So their assumption is not that they are covenant breaking. Their assumption based off the fact that their military has grown, there haven't been any recent wars, their economy is booming, and their land is getting larger, is that God's favor is wildly upon them. And then these prophets show up on the scene and start to accuse them of covenant breaking, of parting ways with what God would intend for them, what Yahweh would intend for them to be doing. And as I said earlier, this is not a lack of religious activity. The temples are full. The worship is vibrant. The rhythms and the practices are kept and met and never abandoned. So what is missing? What is Hosea critiquing them of when he says his main priority is to mark them in covenant breaking? They're missing righteousness and justice. Two more fun Hebrew words for you. I don't really use this many, so don't think I'm this intelligent. It just, you're, you're getting a culmination of things here. So, sedekah and mishpat. Sedekah is righteousness. More specifically, the Hebrew understanding of this word is that it's an ethical standard that refers to the right relationship between people and God. So the minor prophets are concerned with this idea that people would be in right standing with one another as much as they are with God. Also with God, but also with one another. That there would be right and ethical relationships between one another. Mishpat is about the actions you do to create that standard of righteousness or of tzedakah. And this is righteousness and justice. So justice are the actions to create this standing or ethical place of goodness. So if worship is vibrant and they haven't abandoned the festivals and the practices, which we know by Amos 5, away with your, or by Amos, away with your noisy festivals, I will not accept your offerings. Because you've abandoned righteousness and goodness, this is the covenant breaking that Hosea is naming. Their lack of righteousness and justice. And what we see biblically over and over again is that there is a good way that where you can come back to these people and you can make right what you have taken from them and where injustice has happened. But what the Old Testament scriptures are more concerned with is that you would actually begin to create a society and a way of existing where this injustice is not capable of happening. God intended that there would be a space and a place for his people to exist where there would not be able to be injustice because you were living into the way that God had called you and created you to be. And so how does Hosea address this covenant breaking, this injustice and unrighteousness of God's people? Well, he explores it by calling them prostitutes. Whores, depending on your translation. 
Hosea's task is to explore what it means that Israel has always been this covenant breaker, all the way back to Adam. He announces for all to hear and see the utter tragedy of this rejection of the way of life that God intended his people to live. It was never about the worship and the rituals. The worship and the rituals were always to be to set in place this justice and righteousness that God wanted his people to partake in. Because that is who God is. And he wanted his people to function and operate as he was. So the first words in the book of Hosea are a command for Hosea to go and marry an unfaithful woman. This is his call as a prophet. There's this interesting that ha- thing that happens in the prophetic books. Prophets will perform these symbolic acts again and again. What they're doing is something that we would be right to like, perk our ears to and ask the Lord how we could do this. But they're being called to embody the message of God before they deliver the message of God. I can't give you specifics on what that would look like, but I think that we miss that a lot in our attempt for those of us that do try to attempt to proclaim the message of God. We must understand that first we have to embody it. Now, thankfully, I don't know very many of us, if any, that will ever be called to embody it in the way that Hosea was. His was one of the most difficult of all the prophets. For he was told to go and marry a whore and have children with this whore. For the country itself has become nothing but a whore. And so Hosea goes, he marries Gomer, and then they begin to have children. And their names matter. His first child is Jezreel. It says, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Just quick Bible study note background here. This would be the equivalent of someone today naming their kid like Auschwitz or something along this lines. Like no one would do this. It brings up tragedy. It brings up parts of human history that we want to ignore. Smacks of evil. And yet this is what Hosea is called to do. And he has more kids with Gomer. And there's no assurance that each one of these kids are his own. And yet he fathers them. And gives them names as the Lord calls. And the second child's name is to be Lo-Ruhamah. Meaning not loved. Such a name not only implies Gomer's infidelity, but publicizes God's grave displeasure with his people Israel. Then the Lord calls him to name his third child Lo-Ami, or not my people. Adding emphatically, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now normally in Hebrew culture, names for people, they projected hopes for their children. Their parental expectations and excitements for this gift that God has given them, this legacy of their generations continuing on. But with Hosea, we see these names bringing judgment and sadness. So what do we do with these names? What do we have with them? 
we see in these names of the children of Hosea's, the names of his children, we see God's deep estrangement with his people. We see Israel is just like Hosea's wife, Gomer. And as such, Israel's lineage and their future is that of her lineage and her future. Punished, cut off, unloved, not Yahweh's own. But we wouldn't title an entire series A God Who Keeps His Promises if that's where this story ended. God's promise to His people is that He is the promise keeper and that He will deliver on what He has established whether they are going to or not. For He is also faithful. He's gracious to them, willing to accept their faults and their flaws. And so Israel's verdict is followed by another promise in line with all of the promises God has continued again and again to make with His people. He promises that you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet you Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Why does this matter? G.K. Chesterton has this great line in orthodoxy that says, love is not blind, that is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Yahweh, through Hosea's actions, is saying out loud what these words mean. He's bound to his people even though he knows exactly who they are. He is not blind to their actions and to their covenant breaking. But he knows that he loves them and he is bound to them. So though he wants to cut them off and leave them off on their own, he's bound by his love to bring grace and truth to them. And so he will not abandon them. Yahweh remains faithful. Hosea prophesies through the Lord in our passage that we heard read this morning that the Lord would reverse the disasters of the past. There's a reference to the valley of Achor, which is made famous by Achan's sin in Joshua. And what the Lord is saying through Hosea is your worst moments those things that you are most ashamed of, the ones that have seemed to be your failure, you cannot escape. I will take those moments and I will turn them into a door of hope. No longer will they be shame, but they will be opportunities to walk into the hope of the future and the kingdom that God is intending for His people to partake in. He says to them that I will take your promiscuity and I will put an end to it. I will remove the names of your other lovers. I will remove the names of the gods that you have conflated with me. And no longer will you be a servant to those gods. No longer will you be bound by them. But you will be a servant of mine. And my name will be upon your lips. And what he's doing here is he's saying, look, you've been worshiping. But you've conflated it, and we do this all the time as people. 
In our worship with God, we bring the idols and the things that we're pursuing in the culture and the society around us, and we start to conflate it with what it means to be a good Christian or to follow Jesus. And what God is asking and begging of us is to lay those things aside and to put his name on our lips. And what it does is it invites us in to lay aside the thousand deaths that we will die over and over again as we pursue success, as we pursue being loved and liked by the people around us, as we pursue whatever it is that we think makes us a good person. He's saying, lay that aside. Come and be my people now, it doesn't come easy. To prevent yourself from dying the thousand little deaths over and over again of disappointment, frustration, shame, it asks of us to come and die one death to God. This is what the rest of Hosea looks like. It, it asks of us to be honest about who we are. Restoration is not simply being willing to come back into a relationship with someone. Restoration is acknowledging your faults and flaws and why the, rest, the, the relationship was broken to begin with. And in so doing, we acknowledge this and we too are honest and not blind to who we are and we are allowed to be bound in the love that we have in return for God. So in the rest of Hosea, it's these two poetic narratives that are court scenes. And it's, a, it's a divorce proceeding in a lot of ways. Because what God is saying is, I am willing to continue to be faithful. I will graciously miss or look past the things that have done. I will be faithful to what I have promised. And I will continue to be true to you if you will be true to me. But first, we have to acknowledge where you are. And it's a divorce court proceeding. There's been a violation of covenant and they have to own it. And so in chapters 4 through 11... He accuses them of not knowing God. Last Hebrew word of the day is yada. I say that only because we think oftentimes of this being a mental ascent that we make in knowing God and being in relationship with Him. But Adam yada's Eve and they have children. Knowing in the Hebrew sense is beyond much more than a mental ascent, but is a deep personal relationship and intimacy between two people. They know one another, and he accuses his people of not knowing him, and he longs to know them and be known by them. He says, you don't even know me. Chapters 5 through, not 5 through 12, 12 through 14, he lays out all the ways that they have always been unfaithful, and that they will pretty much always continue to be. But both of these sections end with great hope. Familial relationships restored. Covenant and faithful love made possible. Because of Yahweh's deep, deep love and faithfulness to his people. Hosea is ultimately about God's desire to be in relationship with those who he calls his own. It's about a God who is gracious and faithful and true. A God who longs to be near to us is the great news of this book. 
that through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, that we know that we are these people that he intends to be in relationship with. And that there is no place too far, too deep, too evil that he will not go. In fact, he goes to the very depths of hell and Hades to be near to us. He takes on our own evil, our own need to be kings and queens of our own little world. He takes on all of that and says that you think you need to be judge. That you need to be arbitrator. But I will take that judgment of your smallness on in order that I can swallow up the very thing that death tries to put on us itself and that is death itself. And he does this to create a relationship. So the good news of the gospel this morning is that God longs to be near to us. He longs to walk us alongside of us, to carry us, to laugh with us, to celebrate with us, to bring joy, to cry, and to just be. He longs for us to find joy and hope in the difficulties and in the darkness. And as a people, and as a church, He longs to see it thrive. And it will thrive. Many of us have a hard time, I think, with some of this because of baggage, things that have happened to us in the past by other believers. We question God's goodness because we look at the state of the church at times and we ask ourselves the same question that I started with is, what's the difference? Where's the prophetic voice and the prophetic hope of this thing? Many of us have watched failure happen to the people that we were mentored by. Books we've read, sermons we heard at a conference that brought us to Jesus and we watched leader fall. And sometimes it's a lot more closer and more personal and right next to us. It's in our backyard and in our relationships that we have. But this word is true for the church at large itself, too. Dorothy Day has this great quote about the church that I think fits well with Hosea. It says, As to the church, where else shall we go except to the bride of Christ, one flesh with Christ? Though she is a harlot at times, she is our mother. The great beauty and gift in understanding who we are, understanding who Jesus is, is that we can find ourselves continually being caught up in this agent of hope and change that God intended to use, which is the church. Being a part of this people, allowing this justice and righteousness to take place through a localized body through a group of people that choose to follow and practice the way of Jesus together. And we have had a lot of shortcomings and failures ourselves, and so has the church at large. But if we listen to the hope and to the story of Hosea, we know that it is a God who is faithful, even in the midst of failure and shortcoming. Hosea points ultimately to a fulfillment of love that is found in its completion in Revelation 19. A wedding feast 
that celebrates the consummation of God and his people as it was meant and intended to be.